If you are thinking about starting a podcast either by yourself, uh, with a co-host, with guests, uh, maybe it's audio only or uh, with video, please keep on listening. I started podcasting in early 2019, and for the rare occasions that I had on a guest, uh, it was always in person. But uh, once the pandemic came around and everything became remote, um, using Zencaster really, really opened up my possibilities of who I could have on a guest. I wasn't limited to the people who I could get in person anymore. Um, I have recorded guests using Zencaster everywhere from uh, just a handful of miles away from where I am in the Chicago area, all the way to the other side of the world in New Zealand. Uh, so the video and the audio quality are great, especially if they have a decent camera and microphone. Um, and getting the files couldn't be easier. I really, really love that Zencaster records the audio and the video to the person's local computer uh, so the quality isn't lowered when you get things like internet hiccups. It then uploads the footage uh, to the platform during the recording, and when you hit stop, it quickly finishes the upload and then processes the files so you can directly download them right from the platform. The files are even accessible if something goes wrong. Uh, and this next part, I'm going to basically read verbatim uh, because I couldn't have said it better myself. It's super easy to record a podcast with Zencaster. Log in using your browser and start recording a high-quality podcast right away. Record studio-quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. Feel a sense of zen knowing Zencaster's multi-layered backups. Backups ensure you always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. Have you ever worried what you sound like? Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recording. It removes those awkward pauses in conversation, too. Set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. If you have thought about podcasting before and realized that you need lots of different tools and services, those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcast platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. So, go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code WORDNERD W-O-R-D-N-E-R-D, all one word, and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Hello, word nerds. Welcome to another wonderful episode of the Dictionary. I I already know it's going to be wonderful. Uh, today we have a very I'd I'd like to think a very important guest from a very important podcast 
for a very important word, uh, especially to this show, but also to English speakers all over the world. Um, we are talking about the word English today, and of course, a variety of other English words. We have my guest today. I'm very happy, very pleased that we were able to make this work because it doesn't always work when I want a guest. I've got Kevin Stroud from the History of English podcast. Kevin, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Um, I am so pleased to have you here. Um, I guess, <laughs> what was your first thought when <laughs> I reached out to you about uh, a dictionary podcast? <laughs> I, nothing surprises me anymore in, in the world <laughs> yeah. of podcasting. And and the thing is, I've been doing my podcast now since uh, the first episodes were in 2012. So wow. 11 years ago, that was more kind of in the early days of podcasting. And there weren't that many back then. But now it seems like there's a, a podcast about everything. So the idea of somebody reading the dictionary, it didn't really surprise me. No. Glad to hear that. Glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, when I saw that your first episode was 2012, I was shocked that you have been doing this really since the beginning of podcasting. How yeah. did you, what What inspired you to get into that so early? Yeah, I mean, it's a long story. I, it's not the very beginning of podcasting, but it's certainly early days. And it was before yeah. podcasting became a thing. Nobody that I knew even knew what a podcast was, probably had never even heard the word. I think Probably the the landmark event is uh, was the serial podcast, mm. sort of the, the true crime you know podcast that really broke the medium you know open to a lot of people. And I was before that, so yeah, mm. I didn't even I didn't even tell people I did a podcast because it was pointless. Nobody would have known what I was talking about. <laughs> but I was familiar. I'd been listening for two or three years by that point, uh, and I, I just had an interest in. <sighs> In the medium, I like the idea that it was small, that there weren't a lot of people listening. And, you know, I probably I've said before, I probably would not start a podcast today because yeah. it's it's just at the idea of being such a, a small medium that I could just sort of share an interest that I had. And there might be a couple of hundred people. Maybe I could you know attract an audience of a couple of hundred people that might be interested. And uh, I don't know, just sort of a neat little thing to do. Um I, I am an attorney by profession. I always make a point of that and note that I'm not a linguist and I'm not a historian, even though I do a, a podcast about the history of a language. Uh, I'm an attorney. And so initially I was thinking about doing a legal oriented podcast. And then I realized that I did not want to do that because I spent all day doing legal work. And <laughs> yeah. so the last thing in the world I wanted to do was spend my spare time doing a legal podcast. Um, but I, I'd always had an interest in the history of English and my interest in the history of English was very broad. So I was always interested not just in the, the technical aspects of the language, but just sort of the general history behind it and how historical events shaped the history of English. And uh, and that was really I'd never really seen it presented in, in that kind of comprehensive way before. I mean, you could read you could buy a technical book about the development of English and you could buy a book. Uh, Melvin Bragg has a very good book called *The Adventure of English*, which or *Ventures of English*, which which I had just been reading at the time, which is more kind of a social history of the language. And then there are tons of etymology books that that tell you where a word came from. And I just sort of had the idea one day of what if I put all of that information together, so that you tell kind of the social history, the 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 technical linguistic history, and the etym etymological 
history of the language so that you're building in all these aspects at the same time. You can't really do that in a book because there's really, it's too big of a story for a book, but you can do it in a podcast because podcasts are kind of open-ended. And that was really the idea. Uh, The other aspect of it was when I was in college, I had studied some of this in college and I had been exposed to the idea of the original Indo-European language, which is the, the idea that almost all the languages of Europe and many of the languages of South Asia all originated with the same common language about five or six thousand years ago. And I realized that most people weren't familiar with that, but that's something that had interested me. And so that's really the other part of it is I wanted to kind of tell that story too. So we started, I started at at that point, you know, the very, very, very beginning with the original Proto-Indo-European language and then worked from there. And I just, again, just thought it was an interesting story. It hadn't been told, it hadn't been told in that way. I thought the podcast was a great way to do it. I thought, like I said, maybe I could get a hundred, couple hundred people maybe to listen to me tell it. And, you know, here I am talking with you 11 years later. Yeah. What has the reception been like over these 11 years? It's been great. I mean, from the very beginning, I was getting a lot of positive feedback, uh, not just from casual listeners, but even linguists and, and mm-hmm. people who, who had you know, more of an academic professional background uh, were reaching out. Other podcasters were reaching out. Uh, and I got some some good promotion early on from some of the other podcasts and uh, Apple iTunes. This was back in the mm-hmm. days of iTunes uh, had awarded it like one of the history podcasts of the year, you know, the first year or two I did it. So I was getting a lot of accolades early on. Now, of course, over time, as podcasting became a big thing, I kind of got buried in the avalanche of, you know, everything else, but I still have a very nice audience. Uh, I, I never, I never thought I would have a, a, any kind of significant audience because it just seems on its face, if you are looking through a list of podcasts and trying to decide if there's one you want to listen to, and it's called The History of English, unless you already have a particular interest in the history of English, I can't imagine anyone actually clicking it on and listening to it. But um, I try to set expectations pretty low, and, and hopefully that, that I met those. But, but yeah, over the years, just gotten a lot of recommendations and referrals, and it's grown and grown and grown and continues to grow. And of course, as podcasting as a medium grew, that brought in even more listeners over time. So um, yeah, I mean, here I am 11 years later, and this has really become my primary job at this point. Really? Um, yeah, I've, I've mostly retired from practicing law. I, I do occasionally if something comes up, but for the most part, um, I'm doing mostly work on the podcast these days. That's very cool. And I think um, the last I checked, you had over 160 episodes. Does that sound right? I think it's like 170. Maybe I'm working on 172, I think, right now. Yeah, it's a lot. Is there, do you see a, a light at the end of the tunnel? Is there a point where there is no more history to talk about? Or what What, what do you think the future is yeah. like? Yeah, I mean, eventually. I, if you listen to the entire podcast series, you will hear me say in one of the early episodes that I, I had intended it to be 100 episodes in mm-hmm. total. And I had this wonderful design early on, which was... Uh, I thought I could cover what I call the pre-English period. So that's the original Proto-Indo-European language, the, the Latin and Greek influence, and everything up to Old English. I thought I could cover that in about 25 episodes. 
if I did an episode every other week, which was what I was doing originally, I thought well, that'll work out to about a year. And then I can spend 25 episodes on Old English. That'll take about a year. Then I'll do 25 on Middle English. Then I'll do 25 on Modern English. That's 100 episodes, four years, perfect. And I, I'm kind of math oriented. Yeah. So too. this was my grand plan. Four years, 100 episodes, one episode every other week. Perfect. And uh, I did stick with that through the what I call the pre-English period into the old English period. And then I just decided eh, I, I'm having a lot of fun doing it. People seem to like it and I can go longer than that. So I just abandoned that plan at some point in the probably the early Middle English period. So now it's much more open ended. But I would anticipate probably I mean, if just sitting here today, if I had to guess, probably will will be about somewhere between 220 to 250 episodes, I would imagine in total. Well, there's clearly a lot to talk about with the history of English. Um, full transparency, I've li listened to 14 episodes, the first 14. Um, you know, it, 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 it is a history podcast. You know, this mm -hmm. goes deep, deep, deep into history. And that is not necessarily the first thing that I always want to listen to. Um, so it's, I don't listen to it all the time, but you know, mm -hmm. when I feel like I can actually put some, cause also this is not one of those podcasts that I just want to sort of have on in the background, like an entertainment, like my brain is wanders very easily. And so I want to make sure <laughs> that when I'm listening to your podcast, that I'm really soaking it in as much as I possibly can. So I really, I, I have to be kind of in the right mood to, right. for that. Um, it's like class. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and I think that it's, it's very, um, I think it's, I think it's fascinating. I was never the type of person to study uh, English in general, uh, especially history in general. And then you put that, those two things together. But I have grown to learn and appreciate where all of this comes from, where we come from, where our language comes from, the etymology. And it's so fascinating to hear all this stuff, especially when you get into sort of the more specifics about how these sounds and letters changed over all of these hundreds and thousands of years. It's truly fascinating, and I I do plan to listen and get totally caught up, but it's it's going to take a while. <laughs> no, trust me. It's 170-some episodes. Yeah, you you yeah. can spend half your life listening to this thing. No, I, I get what you're saying, too, about it being a bit of a commitment because it's not – it's again, it's I think it's it's – the nature of podcasting has changed. And yeah. uh, it, these days, so many more are just sort of conversational. You know, people begin, they, they tell you what they, you know, what they did over the weekend mm -hmm. and what they had for lunch. And, you know, and it's usually co-host or multiple hosting. Uh, so mine is very old school. It's just me telling you kind of what happened. Uh, there's a lot in each episode. And as I said, it's, it is a history podcast. I mean, you get the nail on the head. This was my concept is that this isn't really a language podcast. At the end of the day, this is a history podcast. And it, in fact, that's how it's still listed on all the podcast categories. I've, I don't think I've ever listed it in the mm. language category. If you try to do a search through, you know, through the category uh, approach, it's uh, always listed as a history podcast. And that's that's the idea. It's just the history of a language. Well, I'm in a very similar boat as you because it's Almost exclusively me, except when I have a guest on, which is not too common. I'd like it to be more common. Um, and then also, <laughs> when somebody looks at the title of either one of our podcasts, like you said before, it's not 
the at the top of their list. It's not the thing that they want to necessarily l- listen to right away. When I tell people, oh yeah, I read the dictionary, uh, <laughs> people don't want to hear that. Um, but I also try to say, but I try and make it a little bit more fun and entertaining um, as right. much as I possibly can. Um, and so uh, I also, I though, in, in a different than you, I don't have a very big listenership. Uh, this is not my full-time job. I wish it was. I wish I could do that. But, you know, I got a, I got about 50 people, which is fine. But at this point, I'm really just doing this for myself. It's been almost five years that I've been doing this. I've got, I don't know, 1,700 episodes or so. And uh, because I, I post every day. It's like Monday through mm-hmm. Friday, 30-minute episodes. And um, I just love learning about this stuff. There are... In every episode, there's at least a handful of words, depending on, you know, the situation, there's at least a handful of words that I've never heard before. Um, I don't know what your, what your, actually, I wanted to ask, other than that class that you took in college, are there other points in your life that you can point to that say, yes, this is how I got to this, to, to creating this podcast, to be interested in this topic? Yes. I mean... I can tell you one of the the important points in getting me here was in high school, in a high school English class. And uh, I think it was maybe a freshman or sophomore, but it was basically a history of English literature class. It wasn't what it was called. It was probably just called English Lit. But the the and i i don't I, rem, I remember virtually nothing from high school except i do remember this class because it began with Beowulf. Mm-hmm. And on the on when we got when we started, Beowulf was was the first real you know piece of literature we looked at. The teacher wheeled in the old VCR, and I don't even know if you remember VCRs, oh, but this I, was I remember pre film. <laughs> <laughs> pre DVDs, um, and this was old videotapes. And she puts in the videotape, and it features people speaking Old English. Okay, and that was the first time I'd ever been exposed to Old English. Which, if you've never heard Old English, doesn't really sound anything like modern English. And it was kind of mind-blowing that this was English, a form of English, and even though it sounded like a completely foreign language. So, yeah, that, that to this day has stuck with me. And, and I do quite, quite a bit of reading in Old English. You know, when, when, if you keep listening and get to the Old English period, you'll hear me do a lot of Old English readings. Uh, but that part of it still fascinates me and was certainly one of the, the, the key kind of moments that that embedded it in my mind that this is something I want to learn more about and, and read and study. And it certainly informs the way I, you know, present the podcast. Yeah. I do remember in uh I think at least a couple of the very early episodes, you did you did speak a little old English. It, well maybe mm-hmm. just a word or two here or there. So we could hear the pronunciation, which was really helpful to me because when I go through this and um, and it shows uh, this, the etymology is from this old English word, I don't know how to pronounce those. And so just just the little bit that I've heard from you has helped sort of change my brain a little bit in how those words are pronounced. Now, obviously, I don't know anything other than just a little bit that I heard. Um, but it was it was really helpful to just get a little bit of a nugget of how these old words were were pronounced. Um, and I, I suspect we might see a, see a couple of those in today. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean that's part of the story too. And to me, that's mm-hmm. one of the real fascinating parts of the story of English is is how 
words have changed over time and how spellings have tried to evolve to keep up with that. And of course, at some point, spellings just kind of gave up. And uh, that's why our spellings don't really match our pronunciations today. But yeah, that's oh, that's yeah. a fun part of the story. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, I'm, I'm sure I will have plenty more questions for you uh, throughout this episode. Um, but I feel like, you know, well, let's let's get started. Um, so uh, the previous episode ended with the word in girdle. And that leads us straight into the first word in this episode, which is, of course, the word English. I love that it's not in the middle of this list of words. It's right there at the beginning. We're jumping right in. Um, there are three forms of this word, uh, and they are all spelled with a capital E. Capital E, N-G-L-I-S-H. And there's two... Okay, maybe you have an answer for this. I, maybe you don't. That's okay. In the pronunciation guide, it shows you can pronounce it one of two ways. In the first way, the G sound... Okay, I take this back. This is not the example that I was thinking about. It's English. That's one pronunciation. And the other pronunciation has no G sound at all. English. English. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I actually... One thing that I learned after I started doing a podcast about English is that... The people who listen tend to be really interested in English, and they're really interested in things like pronunciation and the way people pronounce words. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I, as you can hear, I have an accent, a bit of an accent, and I cannot, I, I cannot tell you how many emails, it has truly probably been thousands of emails I've received over the years about the way I pronounce words. Um, and one of the one of the emails that I get from time to time is about my pronunciation of the word English. And and people say that they don't pronounce it that way, but it's it's the very issue you're raising. It's a matter of how where you put the G and if you pronounce the G. Um, is it English or English? or English, <laughs> there are different ways of pronouncing it. Uh, most of the guides in the dictionaries will try to pick up on the, the major differences in pronunciation, and I tend to rely a lot on the Oxford English Dictionary, which will always give you the British standard, British received pronunciation versus the standard American pronunciation, which is often a little bit different. But yeah, that is a... That is a, a it's one of those very, very subtle differences in pronunciation that most people never pick up on. And I never picked up on it until listeners started commenting about it. But yeah, there are different ways of pronouncing it. Yeah. And that difference, a hard G or not, is such a small change in pronunciation compared to a lot of the words that I've come across that have a big difference in how you can pronounce yeah. it depending on where you live. So I'm I'm a little surprised that people have called out your pronunciation when it's it's such a tiny little difference yeah. than the way they say it. And I would say in most cases it's not people saying, "Oh, you're saying it wrong." <laughs> right. It's just curious about why do you say it that way. And interestingly, that this is a sort of as an aside, but it kind of ties into this. In in earlier forms of English, it was common to really hit that G at the end of words, like ring and sing, the I-N-G. Oh. You'll notice that generally today, when we say those words, we don't really pronounce it with a very distinct G sound. It's ring, sing, ng, ng. Um, but in older forms of English, Middle English and very early modern English, it was ring, 
sing. Mm. It was a very distinct g, g at the end. And that sound was lost, we know, in early modern English and became more ring, sing. It's that, that hard G sort of is, is disappearing at the end. And it was part of that process that also caused people, instead of saying singing, to say singing, running, dancing. Mm. So you, we associate that with a very kind of colloquial type of speech today, maybe kind of rural or, or yeah. non-standard form of English. He was, you know, jumping and dancing around. Well, that was very common in early modern English, and it was part of that process whereby that hard G kind of disappeared, and then in some speakers, the entire G sound disappeared at the end of those words. That is so interesting, and yeah, you you know, singing and and running and dancing. I that's definitely more of a, a, a southern rural way to say it, yeah. but also just a more fun way to say. it. And think. you'll hear it in British English. You'll hear it in yeah. other, but yeah, but we in America we associate it with more kind of a rural type, non-standard accent. Yeah, um, and I will point out uh, the letter, the character that they use here to show the ng that n sound. Um, looks like, which I don't think I've ever specifically called this out before. Um, it's an N, but it has um, the right side of the N sort of curves under the uh, the letter. Um, and that's the way the the IPA, the International Phonetic Alphabet, identifies that ing sound as opposed mm-hmm. to ing. So right. the when you see words like ring, sing, that's how they'll indicate it as a yeah, as opposed to the the hard, more distinct G sound at the right, end. Right, right. Um, okay, well, this word English uh, is an adjective from before the 12th century, which, of course, <laughs> I think makes sense because Old English goes so far back. Uh, this is of, relating to, or characteristic of England, the English people, or the English language. And Englishness is a noun. I love seeing words that have ness at the end that, like, we don't, probably typically use those words very often, but they do exist, so we, we got to mm-hmm. put it in there. Um, how much Englishness do you have? Um, and real quick, let's look at the etymology, which, of course, I'm sure you'll you'll probably have some better information. Uh, obviously, it's Middle English. From Old English, spelled E-N-G-L-I-S-C, from angle, uh, which means angles with an A. Okay, so based on that information, I, I would love for you to to expand on that. Um, what what does angles mean? Um, is that the Anglo, like we see in Anglo-Saxon, I, I assume? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also I'm curious, how would you pronounce English in Old English? So in Old English, it would be, well, probably be Anglish. Okay. Ang, with the, the A sound in Old English would have been more of the ah sound. That S-C at the end. Yeah. Um, well, actually, let me let me back up because I'm thinking of Angles and Anglo-Saxon. So it would have evolved, but it would it would have evolved from more um, English into Anglish. The E sound in Old English had the A sound. So the e, letter E had the A sound. So <laughs> yeah. so probably when you see it spelled E N G L I S C, that's Anglish. That would have been the Old English pronunciation. It's best we can do. That's just kind of giving it each letter its assumed pronunciation. And keep in mind that Old English spelling was phonetic, uh, unlike modern spelling. So we can, I think linguists can get a a good general sense of the way Old English uh, was pronounced just based on that. Um, But let me just say that 
as a, as you mentioned, the word itself it goes back to the Angles, and this takes us right back to the very beginning of English, and it actually predates England itself. A lot of people have the mistaken assumption that the word English comes from the word England, from mm-hmm. the country or political entity, but it doesn't. English predates England. There was an English language that people referred to as English before there was an England. Okay, and so it all goes back to the Angles, and and so that really takes us back to Northern Germany and Denmark. If you want to track, if you want to go to the beginning of English, it's not in Britain, it's in Northern Germany and Denmark. And what happens? Just to take a very long story and and try to shorten it as much as I can. A whole but, podcast into a one sentence. But but you've got in Britain, you know, at, at up until like the. 6th, 5th, or 6th century, you have Celtic speakers. Those were the languages spoken in Britain and still are spoken in kind of the Western fringes and, you know, Scots Gaelic and Welsh and, of course, Irish uh, in Ireland. Used to be Cornish and Cornwall, but it's disappeared. Uh, But those, those were the languages that were spoken throughout the island and also some Latin, because remember that part of Britain had been conquered by the Roman Empire. So you had a mixture of Celtic and Latin. And what happened ultimately is, of course, the Roman Empire fell in the West. So Rome pulls its troops out of Britain, leaves a bit of a vacuum. And this is happening not just in Britain, but throughout Western Europe. You have these Germanic-speaking tribes, peoples in Northern Europe, in German, what is today Germany and Denmark, moving into those in what had been the Western Roman Empire. So into what is today France, and then some of them crossed the English Channel to southern Britain. And those groups were primarily the Saxons from northern Germany. And there's still a region in northern Germany today called Saxony. That's where they came from. They mostly settled south of the River Thames. So if you're familiar with the geography of England, the River Thames runs across, you know, kind of east-west across the southern part of, of England. The Saxons, generally speaking, settled south of the river. Another major group were the Angles, and they were from, or believed to be from modern-day Denmark, the kind of the Jutland Peninsula part of that region. They crossed over and generally settled north of the River Thames. And there was some other groups too. There was a group called the Jutes that settled in kind of the southeastern corner of Britain, and then there was some probably some Frisians from modern-day Netherlands. But anyway, variety of these people, they all spoke very similar language. They could have easily communicated with each other. They just kind of had different dialects of a, a common Germanic language. And ultimately what happens, of course, we know these people today as the Anglo-Saxons. We sort of the two dominant groups were the Angles and the Saxons. Now, today that term has kind of a racial connotation to it, but that's a, a modern development in the word. Historically, when historians refer excuse me, when historians refer to the Anglo-Saxons, they're referring to these early Germanic-speaking peoples. And so they bring the language with them that we know today as English. It is a Germanic language in its root. And so what ultimately happens though is on the continent, the people in the region are, are starting to be referred to as Saxons. So you'll find continental sources referring to these people as in England or what is not England yet, still Britain, as Saxons because the Saxons were the more familiar people uh, and dominant region in Europe. And a lot of them remained behind in Europe too, uh, continental Europe. But then you had, as I said, the Angles. And it appears that historically most of the Angles migrated to Britain. So there were very few, if any, left behind in Denmark. And 
within England itself, I keep saying England, but it wasn't England yet. It was still Britain. Uh, they, they increasingly refer to themselves as the Angles, Angles. Uh, Angolkun. Angolkun was the term. It meant Angolkin. So that was an mm. old English term. And part of the reason why that was was because the dominant kingdoms in the first few centuries were north of the River Thames. So in the far north, you had a, a kingdom called Northumbria, and then the middle, you had a kingdom called Mercia. And these were the early dominant kingdoms. So the Angles kind of dominated. And so, you, you again, you start to see references to Angoland, that mm. is Angoland, which eventually becomes England. And you see references to their language as Anglish, which becomes Anglish, and then later English. Eventually, what happens is in, in the 8th, 9th, 10th centuries, England... And by that, well, it's, again, it's still not quite England yet. It's still a variety of separate independent kingdoms. They start to be invaded by the Vikings from Scandinavia. And if you look at England on a map versus Scandinavia, you see in terms of geography where they would have come from. The Vikings landed in the northern and eastern part of Britain, and that's where the Angle kingdoms were. So they were largely destroyed. And that left behind one dominant kingdom in the southwest called Wessex. They were a Saxon kingdom, but they were the kingdom that emerged and unified all the other English-speaking people and really created England. And so the, the monarchy that we have today really traces itself all the way back to the Wessex kings. So what you have is this term English, which comes from the Angles, because they were the dominant kingdoms in the north and middle part of the country early on, even though the country itself was really formed and created out of a Saxon kingdom in the west. So again, it's a nice shorthand today just to refer to them as the Anglo-Saxons, but uh, they referred to themselves for the most part as Angles. And so that's where the word English comes from. I think that the aspect of the the land sort of being created by the saxons the, the wessex group mm -hmm. that blew my mind when you said that that a lot of the angles had been destroyed uh so how i mean maybe we don't even have an answer for this but like why how did it become anglo or anglo land when it was finished being created by the Saxons opposed to the Angles. That's fascinating. Because it's just by the time the Vikings had invaded, for the most part, and again, now we're talking really the 800s into the 900s. By that point, the peoples, even though they weren't unified yet, they had separate kings. They, for the most part, saw themselves as a common people. Mm -hmm. And remember, they had been fighting the native people, which were the Celtic-speaking people. And, uh, and so they, that together, they spoke a common language. They had a common Germanic culture. So by, by, by we get, by the time we get to the 800s and 900s, for the most part, they see themselves as a common people. And some of them still refer to themselves as Saxons and Angles, but it's a distinction that really no longer mattered by that point. So they didn't really think of themselves, well, we're the Saxons and you're the Angles mm -hmm. and we're not going to use your term. It was just sort of a either term would work. I think when I talk about this in the podcast, I, um, I, I compared it to the term Yankee in American English today, because it's one of those terms that kind of means different things to different <laughs> yeah. people and can have a lot of different meanings. If you're in if you're in England or Europe, a Yankee or a Yank is any American. Mm -hmm. So I'm from the South. I'd be a Yankee. Anybody, you know, would be a Yankee. Um, if you're 
from the South, a Yankee means someone not from the South, right? So we wouldn't consider ourselves Yankees. Uh, but what is a Yankee? Well, someone in the South would agree that someone from Massachusetts is a Yankee or New York is a Yankee. But what about someone from California or Idaho or Arizona? Are they a Yankee? Yeah, it depends on who you ask. So it's one of those terms that means different things to different people. And it depends on who's using it and how they're using it. And that's kind of how the word angle was used originally. It could, it could be used to refer to the whole group. It could be used to refer to some parts of the group. It just kind of depended on who was using it at the time. But eventually, it just became a common term. And I think the, the key figure in the story is, a, is a, the only English king to be called the Great. He was Alfred the Great. And he was the king that really helped to defeat the Vikings, push them back, and was sort of the, the wasn't really the first king of what we would call England, but certainly set the foundation. But he was a very literate man, and he, he, he emphasized the importance of English at a time when English had no regard. You know, Latin was the language of Europe. English was just this kind of peasant Germanic tribal language. He really promoted the use of English. He wrote in English, and he used the term English um, and referred to them as the Uncle Cune, even though he was Wessex king. Mm. So you, you find this from the very beginning, this idea of, of common Angle, Angleish history, you know, and, and, and culture. And that's where English comes from, comes out of that. It's fascinating that if he hadn't been so uh, pro-English, pro-literacy, uh, well, I guess, yeah, specifically for English, um, we, we might not be speaking yeah. English now. It wouldn't maybe have dominated and it's something to keep in mind because when we look at the history of languages, particularly regional languages in Europe and especially Germanic languages, we're very lucky um, in, in terms of English because we have quite a bit to look at. There's relatively little early German or what we would come to know later as Dutch or Scandinavian, Old Norse. We have relatively little from that same period, from the 800s and 900s. We have a fair amount of Old English because, again, there was a, an emphasis placed on the creation of documents. In fact, um, large parts of the Bible were translated into Old English. And that was something you just didn't do at the time because Latin was the revered language. You weren't supposed to mess around with the Latin Vulgate. And, and they were translating it into Old English. Now, we don't have a complete English Bible until we get to the Middle English period, and we get John Wycliffe's version around the time of mm. Chaucer. But they were certainly translating, and, and who knows, there might have been a full translation that's gone that's missing. But we certainly have many different copies of the the Gospels and things like that. And and I mean, this is a different time. This was a time when, you know, there wasn't really any any d distinction between church and state. They were kind of one and the same for the most part. And so most of that early writing is religious oriented. It's Christian. And so, but they had no problem putting it in English uh, when other parts of Europe wouldn't dare put it in a, in a local vernacular. Mm. Oh, it's such an interesting history. Somebody should make a podcast about it. Yeah, somebody. One day. Um, let's see. Oh, um, so I don't know if you are aware of this, but after each word, I like to make a little sound effect. It was a recommendation by somebody um, just to say, we're moving on to the next word. Um, would you like to just come up with some random sound effect from your mouth? Or I can I do something. I don't have a... How about um, a spray? How's this? 
<laughs> there we go. Did that work? That works. That works. Um, if you're willing to do the spray every time... Uh, I've got enough. I can do it. Okay. Maybe it. just one quick spray then. We don't want to waste <laughs> this spray on this whole episode. This is my finger ease guitar. So oh, nice. Okay. It helps with Good. calluses and things like that. It makes uh makes it easier to play because your your fingers don't screech when you're, oh, yeah. you're when you move up and down the street. But we love the screech, don't we? No, yeah. maybe not. <laughs> not really. Uh okay, moving on to the second form of the word English. Uh this one is a noun from before the 12th century. We've got a number of definitions here. Um, and of course, if there's something that pops in your mind, feel free to interrupt me. Um, otherwise, I'll, I'll chug through. Uh, 1A, the language of the people of England. I want Now I want to say England or something like that, but no, I must stick to my modern pronunciation. Please. Uh, <laughs> the language of the people of England and the U.S. and many areas now or formerly under British control. Um, and so, of course, uh, India would be the first one to think that I think of, the one of the biggest ones probably where, you know, obviously they have their local languages, but for many, many years, uh, they also speak very good English and often with a British accent from what I have noticed. Right. Well, yeah. And I mean, that's how English becomes the kind of global language that it is today. It comes via the British Empire. So, and and, and actually, since the podcast is chronological, that's kind of where I am in the overall oh. story. I'm, I'm right. Currently, I'm in the middle of the Shakespeare period, but that's that's about the same time that the you know British Empire was being established in, in, in the New World. And so that's really it. It's you know, it's, uh, there are so many different factors that caused English to reach the, you know, the point that it is today and not all of it was pleasant. Oh yeah. Um, you know, certainly today, culturally speaking, people around the world learn English because it's sort of a dominant language and it's the best way to communicate, um, in, in something close to a global kind of common language. But, but early on, you know, the language spread through violence and death and murder. And I mean, that's, that's, it's tied into colonialism, you know, that's the story. And so it's a, there's a, there's an ugly part of the history too, but that's how we got to where we are today. Yeah. And obviously, you know, a big part of that was um, also Australia and New Zealand um, going in and not treating the locals very well, to put it very nicely. And it's, yeah, like you said, not a good part of the history, but it is what it is. And we have Mm -hmm. to move on and figure out how to deal with that. Yep. Uh, so 1B, this is a particular variety of English distinguished by peculiarities. And uh, what might those peculiarities be? They could be pronunciation. Uh, and yeah, I mean, just in one country, you have a whole variety of pronunciations. I love how, you know, anybody in anybody who lives in America, they hear a certain kind of accent from another part, they know where it's from. Um, you know, same in England, just in specifically London. Uh, you know, I love how they know where everybody is, uh, but just based on their accent, of course, to my ear, I can't pick those out, but we all can. Well, and I'll just add that within Britain today, there's tremendous dialectical diversity. So you have tremendous variation in accent from almost one town to another. Some of that ties back into what we talked about earlier with uh, regional differences between Angles and Saxons. So from the very beginning, there were regional differences in in the English um, 
And so you have that much more so in England today and, and throughout the British Isles than you do even in America. We have different American accents and dialects, but we don't have anywhere near the amount of diversity that you would find in, in Britain, which is a much smaller you know, geographical region. That's what I find so fascinating about that. Not only do they have more, but they are in a much smaller space uh, by, a, by, a, by a factor of a lot. Um, so that, it's so interesting that they have so many different accents. Um, 1C, English language, literature, or composition when, when a subject of study. So when uh, language, literature, or composition is a subject of study, it is called English. Th- these these topics were always my weakest subject in school. All the years, um, anything that had to do with reading and writing, it's not like I couldn't read or couldn't write, but I didn't. My br- I, I had more of a math and science brain than a English brain, um, and so I think that's part of the reason why I'm doing this is to help me just just have a bigger bigger vocabulary, just learn things that I didn't really care to learn back in the day. Yeah. And I mentioned that earlier for me. I was always more a math and science guy. I didn't like yeah. English. English is one of my, generally speaking, one of my least least favorite subjects. Um, and that's that's kind of how I approach it. I think you know you don't have to be a fan of of English, hopefully, to listen to the podcast because it's uh, I kind of approach it as someone who who's you know didn't really like English in school that much. That kind of blows my mind. I would not have expected mm-hmm. that, but. Um, we definitely have that in common. I it's the thing to me, the, the idea of diagramming a sentence is just an absolute nightmare. And I don't even know if kids still do that or not. But but it, did you diagram sentences? Yeah, yeah, school? definitely. Yeah. Um, and I think I just mentioned this recently where, you know, I know the verb, I know the subject, I know the object. Um, but once it, once the terms get a little bit more advanced than that, I think my my level of education stopped at like sixth or seventh grade. And what I found in school is they never explained why, because there are so many weird exceptions in English and weird rules we do. I mean, one of my favorite examples is why do we say, you know, we have a leaf that ends in an F. We have leaves with a V. We thief with an F, thieves with a V. But we don't always do that. You know, we have a chef with an F and chefs with an F. Chief with an F, chiefs with an F. So why do we switch that sound at the end? There's actually an answer for that. And the simple answer is the words that go back to Old English make that change, like leaf and thief. Words that came into the the language later, like Mm. chef and chief from French, don't make that change. But they never explained that in school. And so I just, you got so many just weird rules like that. And I was so frustrated. And, and I don't even think the teachers knew the answer oh, as to sure why either. So, and don't even get in, into spelling and all the weird spelling yeah. rules we have. So, yeah, that was the thing for me that, that I hate, I kind of hated it about English. That I, I didn't understand why it worked. And so that's what I kind of do in the podcast is try to explain why those things are like that. Yeah. And those are the parts that I actually find the most fascinating because I because I also have been so frustrated about those weird spellings. And yeah, I love that. Um, Let's see. Number two, this would be it says plural, uh, the people of England, the English. So you just say English and you automatically know that that word is plural when you are talking about the people of England. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number three, a. An English translation, uh, yes, yeah, just it's just called uh, the English, the English version of that thing. Three B, idiomatic or intelligible English. 
Um, do you do you have a, a, a better way to describe that or another way? Intelligible English, idiomatic English. I'm not exactly sure how they're using it there. Yeah. Um, I mean, so as opposed to someone who's speaking gibberish and you say, why don't you speak English? Mm. You know, or someone who's speaking in a very non-standard poor way. Um, say, why don't you say that in English? You know, maybe that's how they're getting, yeah, meaning yeah, it. That makes sense. Something referring to kind of a standard form of the language. Yeah, that we can understand. Yeah. Uh, number four. Spin around the vertical axis. This is this is totally different than all the other ones. Spin around the vertical axis deliberately imparted to a ball that is driven mm -hmm. or rolled. Um, <laughs> and that one says compared to draw, follow, and body English. So of course I think of uh, pool, billiards. Pool. Yeah. First of all, there's yeah. other other you know tennis and you know, that'll use English, but I don't know if they would call it English. Do you have any idea where that? why we use that word okay <laughs> I, I was that's I the only reason why i got you on this podcast no okay, well, i'm kidding of course we can do we can do an addendum at some point but yeah i don't know i don't know yeah i've always wondered why I use the word english there but yeah so this is the idea of if you want the ball to go more forward you're going to take the cue ball and hit the cue on the higher side so it's spinning vertically yeah. um opposed to uh, you know the draw that would be where you hit it on the bottom of the ball and so it's going to give it more backspin I don't right. Uh, yeah. Um, let's see. There's no specific etymology for this because we already talked about it in the other one. Uh, do you do you play pool or billiards? I do. Mm -hmm. Are you good because you have more of that mathy brain? Because it's all about angles. Um, I was I was better when I was younger because I used to play all the time, mm. but not so much anymore. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. I never get to play, but it's fun to try and try and use the angles. Yeah. Now I'm thinking like we can use the terms angles, angles, like angle Saxon, <laughs> and then the English on the ball. There's some way that you can put all this together into into billiards, but I don't know how that is yet. Well, supposedly, and this is kind of a controversial etymology, but supposedly the word angle, as in we've been talking about the you know Germanic speaking group that gave us the word English, is related to the word angle like um, a fish hook. So okay. an angler, yeah. like a fisherman, is an angle because it has kind of a hook shape because the Jutland Peninsula, where the angles came from, has kind of a hook shape. Interesting. And they think that the same word referred to their kind of homeland, the shape of the peninsula, and of course the people themselves. And that, that's, you know, that's sort of a generally accepted etymology. It seems a, a little off to me because I'm not sh sure how they would know exactly how their peninsula was shaped. Right. You can see it from a satellite image, but, but yeah, it is generally thought that the, that the two come from the same origin. Yeah. And I would think that they would also be fisher people. They would have been fishing as well, but whether or not that's connected, uh, yeah. yeah, who knows? I don't know. Um, okay. A spray sound effect, please. Okay. Oh, I got to bring it back. Let's see. Yeah, you might want to keep it handy. There we go. Uh, the third form of English. This is a transitive verb from the 14th century. Number one, to translate into English. So I don't know if I would have ever used. I'm gonna I'm gonna English that. Yeah. It seems like that's that, but that was common. And if you read Middle English documents, you'll see that usage from time to time. Mm -hmm. That the scribe, because remember, most documents were written in Latin. Uh, that was sort of the standard scribal language. And, uh, and so if someone translated the Latin into English, 
they were said to English it. The, uh, clearly, it comes from somewhere. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's not like a... I don't think that's something that we probably use very often. Uh, not in that way, I mean. No, not anymore. Yeah, yeah it's kind of fallen yeah. out of use. Uh, number two, to adopt into English, and the synonym is anglicize. Um, interesting mm-hmm. that we still use that angle prefix there instead of Englishize. Um, right, maybe, right. Uh, but yeah, so to bringing something into the, Eng- the world of English, England, uh, is Englishing. And that comes up a lot in the podcast because English has borrowed so many words over the centuries, especially from French and Latin and Greek and Old Norse and all these languages. Yeah. And so I'm constantly talking about how, you know, in the process, the word becomes ang- anglicized, yeah, yeah. Uh, but basically means we kind of adapt it to fit the model of English. Yeah. I mean, and that's the majority of the words that I come across have those yeah that history, Latin, Greek, French, those are very, very common here. And then, of course, as I started to listen to your podcast, it all started to to fit together and make sense. A very tiny portion of our vocabulary comes from Old English, is actually native to English. Uh, I don't have a specific number, but probably maybe 10, 15% or so, something like that. But they're very common words. Mm. And I always say children speak Old English because... Those are the kind of the first words you learn when you're learning to speak or if you're learning English as a foreign language. It's your, you know, kind of basic body parts, your numbers, okay. you know, your, your family relations, mother, father, brother, sister. So they're very simple, basic words. Those words have remained over a thousand years because they're so common. But but almost, you know, the bulk of our words otherwise have been replaced with these loan words from other languages. That makes sense. Um it's uh, it's sound effect time. Oh, man, I'm gonna run out. Yeah, we 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 can do something else. We can just make a. I might have to switch up. Yeah, totally. That stuff's not not cheap. By yeah, the way. probably okay. don't want to no, be uh, spraying it out into the air. Then uh, we'll come up with something for the next one. That'll that was the last spray. Okay. Uh, next is English different breakfast spray. noun from 1807. One, a substantial breakfast. Well, so that's the main definition, but it might be consisting of eggs, ham, or bacon, toast, and cereal. So really, just a, a big, substantial breakfast is an English breakfast. Um, and and I'm, I'm sure we've all seen pictures. Some of us have even eaten an English breakfast. But yeah, it's just a whole lot of good, tasty stuff on a big old plate. Yeah. So obviously cuisine varies from region to region, culture to culture. So this, an English breakfast is sort of the typical, you know, what what we would associate with England. And of course, we would associate it with much of, of North America as well, or at least the United States and Canada. Um, interesting word breakfast there takes us away a little bit from English, but it's an English breakfast. Um, I don't know if your listeners know what breakfast, where it comes from, but it's literally a break in the fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's an interesting little bit of etymology there. Specifically, it has to do with the main meal of the day and the fact that over the centuries, it got shifted around so that in the early Middle Ages, well, again, I said there wasn't much of a division between church and state. It was a very religious age, and, and the, there were a series of prayers throughout the day that regulated life. And the main prayers were the nonus prayers. That's when the monks and other people took a break. And it's when they tended to have their big meal. And originally, the nonus prayers were like mid were like around three o'clock in the afternoon. 
But then around the 1100s or 1200s, the church moved them up about three hours. And that's where we get the word noon from today. It comes from the nonus oh, prayers. Okay. And so it, they were moved up to noon. Well, when the, when the prayers were moved up, the big meal, what we would call dinner today, moved up to the middle of the day. And then what happened is people said, well, since the big meal is in the so early now, we're not going to eat in the morning anymore. And in fact, it was considered kind of gluttonous or indulgent if you ate before, you know, the big mm. meal. So people didn't do it. But then at some point, you know, if you're working the farm and you're a peasant, you know, you got to have a little bit of something early in the morning. So people would start to dip some bread and wine or something because people drink wine and beer. And so that that's where we actually get the breakfast from because that early morning period was the fast. Now, today we use the word fast typically to mean an intentional period of not eating for religious or health purposes. But the word just means any period of not eating. And in earlier periods of English, it just meant you know any time when you weren't eating. So there was a fast in the morning. And now people started to break that fast by having a little something when they would get up in the morning. And so that's where we get breakfast from. Eventually, what happens, though, is as... As the influence of the church passes and the nonus prayers kind of pass away, the big meal kind of moves back again to later in the day. And so eventually what happens is breakfast becomes a standard meal. Um, interestingly, that word dinner still varies because what is dinner? Is it the, the late meal or is it the midday meal? Generally, it, it refers to the big meal whenever you have your big meal. Most people today, I think, would say dinner is the late meal. You would go out to dinner. But I grew up in a rural area that, that used the older terminology. We referred to dinner as the midday meal. The noon meal was dinner. The late meal was supper, mm -hmm. which is also an, an old Middle English word. Um, so that's really kind of what, what the, the terminology that people would have used in the 1200s and 1300s. But today, because culture has changed, things have shifted back around. We would say lunch and dinner. So anyway, the, the, the point being is that these terms reflect changes in culture and society and religion and everything. You know, it, it's all tied in together. Right. And that's how that's the wonderful thing about language is there's a history behind all these words. Yeah. And we just don't think about that. You know, for most of my life, I didn't think about where did breakfast, lunch, dinner, supper come from. Yeah. And I do remember, and I don't know if I had learned the etymology of breakfast before this, but I do remember seeing uh, Lord of the Rings, one of the movies, mm -hmm. uh, he comes in, I think it's... Uh, um, Aragorn says, uh, we, we, we need to break our fast. And it was like, whoa, that's what breakfast is. It's right there mm -hmm. in the word. It's not even like changed in any way. It's just right there. And of course, Tolkien was a, a, a you know fascinated with Old English and uses a lot of these Old English terms, yeah. even though that's not technically break and fast are Old English words, but they weren't put together like that until Middle English. But yeah, he he loved using those kind of old Middle English and Old English terms, mm -hmm. and or, sometimes or using, explaining what they meant, or using that and and making something new based on right. those old rules. Exactly. Um, number two for English breakfast, the synonym is kongu, C-O-N-G-O-U, but broadly, any similar black tea. Um, of course, I've already gone through the seas. I must have read kongu at some point. I have no memory because my brain has gotten too filled. Um, but yeah, so it must be some kind of tea. Uh, but yes, I've definitely heard of English breakfast tea. Yeah. Yeah. 
let's see. So I may, I mean, I assume that that tea was just drank, drunk, drank uh, during breakfast time. Do you? Are you a tea drinker? Do you much, know much about that one? I'm not a big tea drinker. Maybe, I really yeah. don't. I don't know much about it. Yeah, uh, that's the only thing I could think of is that it was. It, they ha- they would drink it during breakfast, and that's why it's called English breakfast tea. Uh, okay, let's come up with a new sound effect. Uh, we could also just make a spray with our mouth. Let's do a um, let's do a clap. Perfect clap. That's free, <laughs> easy and free. Yeah, you're not gonna run out of claps. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one is English cocker spaniel, noun from 1948. Any of a breed of active, friendly spaniels that have square muzzles, wide noses, and heads, which are typically half muzzle and half skull, with the forehead and skull arched and slightly flattened. And of course, I will post a picture of an English Cocker Spaniel on social media because we can't see enough of dogs. Um, Okay, Uh, they didn't explain why it's called English Cocker Spaniel, uh, but I assume that this was where they were bred, probably in England. Well, now the word spaniel is a giveaway. Spaniel means it came from Spain. Um, spaniels actually did historically originate in Spain, or were at least thought to originate there. So when they were introduced to Northern Europe and England, they were called spaniels. Uh, a cocker spaniel cock is referring to a hen or, or, or chicken. And so originally they were used to kind of root out or ferret out wild chickens, cocks. Mm. And so that's where Cocker Spaniel comes from. Now, as to why it's called an English Cocker Spaniel, it, I'm not entirely sure. It could be some breed uh, that was you know, developed in England. I'm not sure about the, the English connection, but it's kind of interesting within English Cocker Spaniel, you have references to both England and Spain in there. Exactly, yeah. Uh, never, I never thought about that. And you've got three references to two countries, but three separate things. Uh, yeah. England, chickens, and Spain. Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, maybe I'll throw uh, some link in the show notes if people want to read more about sort of Spaniels in general, but also like why is the word English for this specific type of Spaniel. Right. Yeah. Uh, clap time. Yeah, they do come up quick when you got a lot of words. Uh, Next is English daisy, noun from 1852. The synonym is just the 1A definition of the word daisy, so it's just a very specific kind of daisy. I think it's just, yeah, just a daisy. And the interesting thing about daisy, again, the etymology is right there if you look closely. A daisy was originally the day's eye because a daisy opens its petals in the morning, closes them at night. So it was the day's eye. In fact, sometimes the sun was called the day's eye. Oh, interesting. But at any rate, uh, that flower was a day's eye and became daisy over time. And if I'm remembering, I don't know flowers, but is it a lot of white petals and then the yeah. center was a little yeah. bit darker? So it begins, um, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So it looks like an eye, kind of. Yeah. I, 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 the other little bit of etym- etymology, and it's just linked in my brain, and I sometimes have to make, I make that connection unintentionally, is a yeah. dandelion. Because mm. I talked about a dandelion in the podcast when I talked about Daisy, because a dandelion has a very kind of similar little etymology in, in that its, its etymology is in its name. A dandelion is Dante Lion. It's a tooth of the lion. It's a lion's tooth. Uh, mm. Because dandelions 
when they're, I guess, early in their, their life, they have the long little yellow leaves and eventually they become these little white snowballs. Yeah. But the, the long little yellow leaves were thought to look resemble, I don't know, a lion's tooth. So that was the, in French, the don't de lion, the tooth of the lion, then it becomes dandelion. So I always kind of have that connected in my mind to a yeah. daisy, which is a day's eye. So these little, these little interesting etymologies sometimes embed yourself, embed themselves in the brain like that. Yeah, yeah. There's a few. I do vaguely remember learning about day's eye when I read the word daisy, uh, similar to dandelion. The fact that they thought that the the yellow strands, the yellow petals looked like the tooth of a lion, I think is a bit of a stretch. It it could be maybe because. That looked like a tooth, and they associated yellow with lions. Sure, um, sure. Lions were very regal and appeared on a lot of heraldry and stuff yeah. and were often depicted as gold or yellow. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Yeah. But yeah, no, I understand what sense. you're saying. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Um, and then I did bring up a picture, yes. The, the daisy is um, a circle white with a yellow um, iris. I mean, you could call it, if it's the day's eye, that would be the iris. Um, yeah. Oh, fascinating. Of course, if people want to go back and listen to me talk about these etymologies way back, it's many, many episodes ago, and I'm sure I asked many questions. Uh, oh, uh, clap time. Oh. English foxhound, noun from 1845. Um, this is any of a breed of medium-sized foxhounds developed in England and characterized by a muscular body by or tri-colored short coat and lightly fringed tail. And of course, I will obviously post a picture of an English foxhound as well. Um, so I'm trying to I'm trying to think of what a foxhound looks like. I, I'm just gonna have to bring up a picture here. Um, do you know? I mean, again, we we've got hound, dog. That's uh, from mm-hmm. what I know. Foxes. They probably went after foxes, mm-hmm. and then they were used to hunt foxes. Yep. That's yeah. where they get them. And the interesting thing, too, is that in uh, the Old English word for a dog was hound, hound in Old English. So that would have been the common word. Uh, the word dog doesn't really come along until the Middle English period, a little bit later. And kind of no one really knows for certain where it came from. Originally, it was used usually in a negative kind of connotation mm-hmm. or sense, but uh, it's just one of those words that replaced the native word over time. Today, we generally refer to them as dogs, but the native word is hound. And in fact, if you know German, you'll you'll hound. I mean, you'll you'll see the connection there. Right, right. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I brought up a picture. They look kind of like a beagle. Um, they've this one has uh, this one is tricolored. Some of them, I guess, are bicolored. I don't know what would be the missing color there, but this one is black and brown and white. And uh, yeah, they just sort of have a they they just look similar to a beagle to me. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Okay, clap time. Oh. We're, I'm getting so much applause in this episode. I, I love it. Uh, next is English holly. Noun from 1865, a Eurasian holly with glossy green leaves and persistent red berries that is widely planted in the U.S. And the species name looks like uh, Ilex aquifolium. Um, do you have any additional etymology for holly or the species no, name? Anything? I really don't. Yeah. Glossy green leaves. Yeah, maybe I'll post a picture of one of these too. 
I th- uh, oh I yes I think of Holly uh, definitely something around Christmas time. Uh, I can very much visualize those sort of pointy yeah. green leaves with the red sure. berries. Yep, definitely. Going to start seeing those pretty soon. This episode is airing, I think, in January, so it's past for all the listeners. But uh, coming up for us is December and Christmas time. So yeah, hollies are going to be all over the place. That time of the season. Yeah. <laughs> it's also clap time. Oh. Clapton? Oh, Clapton. <laughs> I had to get my guitar spray out again. Yeah. Uh, do you do you play uh, any Eric Clapton songs or? I probably have at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Not part of your yeah. regular repertoire. Not really. I mean, I, I I play a lot of acoustic guitar these days, so I do actually a lot of kind of instrumental and even a little bit of classical type stuff, and yeah, all kinds of stuff. Nice. It's one of those instruments that I think I should have learned when I was younger, and I know the the structure of it. I know the the what each string is and the 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 tech. I've done it, but I it's not it's not in my fingers. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, to... I'm 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 an amateur, but I've been doing it longer than doing the podcast. So I've been <laughs> I've been doing it since I was a teenager, and uh, so it's been a, a long time now. Yeah. Um, next is English horn, noun from 1838. This is a double reed woodwind instrument resembling the oboe in design, but having a longer tube and a range a fifth lower than that of the. Uh, uh, my mouth stopped working than that of the oboe, um, and so that means it's about a half octave lower than the oboe. And we do have a picture. Um, so yes, it, it looks like an oboe. The bottom um, is has a very sort of bulbous bell. Um, and then it has a very long, skinny tube at the top, uh, which is where the double reed is. And I've never played an English horn. Um, I do sort of, I can sort of hear what they sound like. I think an oboe has a more of a sort of high-pitched sound. And I think the English horn has a little bit more of a round sound. That's the easiest way I can describe it. Do you have any connection yeah. or knowledge about an English horn? I don't. Um, yeah, I don't, never played woodwind instruments so i don't really know a lot about them yeah i do the only thing i would add to that just in terms of etymology is uh interesting connection between horn which is a native english word and the latin word corn or cornu same word ultimately because remember latin and english share that same common history we just see a very common sound change there the original word would have had that K sound we hear in corn, whereas English has a, a softer H sound that developed in uh, in the Germanic period. But the connection there is very obvious if you think about uh, what in English we would call a horn of plenty, but in Latin they would call a cornucopia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we use those terms almost interchangeably, but you can see the connection there right at the, the beginning. It's ultimately the same word. It's just used, you know, it comes from different sources. Yeah, yeah, literally corn and horn. Uh, yeah, I mean, it does say here this is a translation of the Italian corno inglese. Um, and, you know, obviously that is very, very connected to right. Latin. Um, right. It's interesting, I guess, that I, I, it doesn't explain why we're using using the word English here. Uh, if it's is it an Italian instrument, and they decided, or is it from England, or it, w- like what? I, I'm a little confused as how English and Italian got connected there with this instrument. I don't know. I don't yeah. know if it's just a slight variation that was developed in England, or right. 
I don't know. Yeah, maybe it started in Italy, and then the English made their own version, and then Italy took. I I don't know. I, I'll, I'll see yeah. if I can find mm-hmm. something and, and put it in the show notes. Fascinating. Uh, okay, uh, clap time. Oh, Eric, clap time. Eric Next is. is English Ivy noun from 1624. Uh, this is just the number one definition for the word ivy, so it's just a kind of ivy, probably in England. Yeah, I don't know. That's Not, it. Don't really know anything about it. Yeah. More claps. Gosh, my hand's getting tired. <laughs> yeah, right. Go back to my spray. Uh, next is Englishmen. Uh, and, of course, a similar uh, pronunciation with the word English, noun from before the 12th century. This is a native or inhabitant of England. Um, I believe, if I remember correctly, I think it was on your podcast where you talked about the word man and how that didn't necessarily... Now, I listened to another podcast called The Allusionist, which is also mm-hmm. a lot about mm-hmm. etymology. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if it was in that one. But if I remember correctly, the word man didn't necessarily mean a man like we think of now, opposed to man and woman. It was just sort of a person. Is that correct? Right. Exactly. Uh, which still survives in in terms like mankind. Yeah. Which is uh, Old English, both man and kind are Old English. Um, it, it originally was a generic term for a human, you know, a human, male or female. In fact, the word woman... Um, is a combination of the word weef, which meant woman or female. We still that word still survives as the word wife, mm-hmm. but again, it's the meaning has evolved. So it's a combination of weef and man. So it meant a, a female person, uh, and over time, it's kind of become slurred into woman. But even within the word woman, we can see man hanging on there, you know, grasping on for dear life with its original meaning. But over time, of course, man has become restricted in, in most usages to uh, a male. But that's a that's a development, and this is you know, this is just the history of the language, and it's true, frankly, for most words in the language. There's been some evolution over time in, in meaning, uh, a whole lot of evolution, yeah. and it's interesting that that uh, weef weef man female person became that but it never there was never a male version um the word man just stayed as man to represent a male person but in old english people would not necessarily have used the word man for a male right again it had a more general sense so you would have had other terms like the word where which uh was a common word for a man and it survives in a word like werewolf which is a man wolf um, but yeah, so there were other terms, but eventually what happens is as the term man becomes more restricted to a male, there was a need to distinguish then a female. Right. So at that point you get a weef man, a woman man or mm-hmm. a female man <laughs> or a female person. Right, right. So yeah, the, that's how the, the weird way these words evolve. And, and when one word acquires a more distinct meaning, we now have to distinguish its use from, you know. From other uses, mm-hmm. other usages. So, yeah, that's just kind of how it works sometimes. Yeah, and I, you know, obviously now in these days where we we're seeing a lot more um, gender identities and things like that throughout the world, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if these words change again, or we are right. starting to see new words come in. Well, that and that's happened. You think about a word like chairman, the chairman right. of the board. That's using man in the original sense of the word. It just means the chairperson. But because we associate the word man with males, 
there has been a modern effort to you know, rephrase some of those terms. So today you will see the term chairperson mm-hmm. instead of chairman. But again, it's just, uh, you know, it's just the way the language evolves. And, you know, and I understand that and people want to want, want something that's more gender neutral. And, and, you know, since man has acquired a very specific gender, you know, definition, then we have to come up with a different one. Yeah. Uh, I was definitely in my forties when I learned that man didn't used to mean man, how we think of it now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was a really interesting education. Um, yeah. So anybody from England is an Englishman or English woman, which, uh, is in the next episode. Uh, uh, more claps. Don't clap too hard. Uh, next, we've got English muffin. Oh, these are good. Noun from mm. 1884. A bread dough rolled and cut into rounds, baked on a griddle, and split and toasted just before eating. Now, obviously, this is not how we typically make our English muffins. We don't cook them and uh, griddle them right before, I guess, split and toasted. Yes, you're going to toast it right before you eat it, but we're not baking it before, right before we eat it. Somebody else usually does the baking for us. Right. Um, I, I don't eat a lot of these, but they're good. All the nooks and crannies. You got to get your yeah. butter in the nooks and crannies. Um, do you they're know good. the much etymology for the word muffin? Since we're here, I don't. I don't. Didn't look that one up. Um, yeah, yeah. That's. I do know. Obviously, there's a, a big difference in the way some bakery terms uh, are used in the United States and in England. So, classic example is biscuit, <laughs> which uh, in Britain is is more like a cracker, mm-hmm. and in in America we think of it as more fluffy, you know, kind of a softer thing. Um, yeah, but but. Just the, the the nature of foods like that evolved differently in North America and Britain. So we find a lot of variation. Cookie, for example, is a, a really an American term, comes from Dutch, believe it or not, because it, it really apparently originated around New York. Remember, New York was originally a Dutch colony. Mm. And uh, so that's kind of where the word cookie comes from. But then... It's sort of spread around the world now too. So yeah, a lot of these bakery terms, you got to be very careful how you're using them. Using them if you're talking with an English speaker from a different part of the world, because they have slightly different meanings. Yeah, I mean, uh, I would assume that this thing, uh, this English muffin, came from England. I'm not sure. I don't know why else it would be called in English. But of course, a muffin that I think of is a very different kind of yeah. uh, pastry. Um, and so right. the, what, can we call that an American muffin? And then the English muffin is, uh, I don't know, maybe that's probably yeah. not going to stick. And some of these distinctions used to be much you know, clearer between the regions. And these days, again, there's so much mixing that, you know, a, a term that was once unique to America now may be very common in, in England. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't even know what terms to use anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but yes, love a good English muffin. Uh, okay, more claps. English P. This is P-E-A, noun mm-hmm. from 1634. Uh, this is uh, Southern, and so maybe this is more common from where you grew up. Uh, the synonyms are the 1A and 1B definitions for the word P. Um, so do you do you know much about why it's saying Southern here? Or, or is it that people who live in the Southern part of America will call a P an English P? English. 
I'm not sure. Read that again. What does it say? Uh, it's literally just um, the synonym. It's just the P, 1A and 1B definitions for the word P. So I would have to but go... where does Southern come in there? Um, How is it used? It's it's in italics. It just says Southern. P. Um, so now I'm just very curious. I might have to break my rule and just read what those definitions say. Um, I'm not entirely sure why it would say that. Uh I mean, you certainly have peas outside of the South. <laughs> right. We have uh, a lot of different kinds of peas in the South. We have, you know, black-eyed peas mm. and all different kinds. But I don't really know why that would necessarily um, require a specific entry right? You know, you, as indicating Southern. You don't ever call peas English peas necessarily. No, yeah, it could be a little bit of an older term, too. Yeah. The other thing I would say about peas just in general is a fascinating word, and it shows how easily confused people are when it comes to language, because the original form of the word was peas, P-E-A-S-E, typically. So you would have one peas, mm. one little peas. But since it ends in an S, people thought that was plural. And so at some point, people said, okay, so if you've got more than one, you must be a peas. So if you've only got one of them, it must be a P. Obviously. And so P just sort of evolved into language because people were confused by the S sound at the end. The same thing, by the way, happened with the word cherry, which was borrowed from French. Uh, I think it's charisse in French, but English borrowed, borrowed it as charisse, which became cherries. But it was one. Just one little one mm. was a cherries. But people got confused by that S at the end. And so eventually over time, they said, well, if you've Cherries must be plural, so if you've got one, it must just be a cherry. So yeah, peas and cherries, those are the pea and cherry are, are newer kind of forms in the language yeah. created through confusion. That's very interesting. Um, so uh, I did look ahead at the word pea. Uh, 1A says a variable annual Eurasian vine of the legume family that is cultivated especially for its rounded, smooth, or wrinkled, edible, protein-rich seeds. That's what we think of as a pea. And then 1B is the seed of the pea. So yeah, I guess um, some some people at some point, maybe in the southern U.S., called peas English peas. Don't know why. Um, I'm not sure. I will say that in the south it is common to refer to potatoes as Irish potatoes. Mm. Um, or as many people will say, Irish potatoes. But they're <laughs> saying Irish potatoes as opposed to just potatoes. Uh, so maybe it's tied into that. Maybe at one yeah. time it was common to say English peas. We have to specify where this thing came from, maybe. And it's uh, not America, so we have to designate that. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, let's see. I think it's clap time. Oh. Englishry is next. So this is just the word English with R-Y at the end. Noun from 1620. The state, fact, or quality of being English. And the synonym is Englishness, which we saw uh, before. Um, uh, this is definitely not a word that I have come across. How about you? No, it's not common today, I mm -hmm. wouldn't think. I think Englishness would be more common. Yeah. yeah, and even that I don't think is very common either. Yeah. But definitely more common than Englishry. Englishry. I think we need to bring this one back. It sounds very kind of elevated to refer yeah. to Englishry. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You have to say it with an English-British yeah. accent. I think you would. Mm -hmm. uh, all right, more claps. Hmm. 
Next is English saddle. Noun from 1739. A saddle with long sidebars, steel cantle and pommel, no horn, and a leather seat supported by webbing stretched between the saddle bow and cantle. Um, I think the only part of that that I understood a little bit was, well, leather. I know what leather is. And the horn. I think in most saddles, there's that part that you can hold on to or mm-hmm. wrap the rope around. That's the horn. But these other words, I don't know. Do you know anything yeah. about these? I don't either. And I'm realizing <laughs> now we're talking about all these uniquely English terms as two Americans. We have no right. idea what we're talking about. So I don't I don't know. Yeah. Uh, no clue why this is specifically called English. Is it from England or did somebody think, uh, who knows? I'll, I'll maybe put a link in the show notes for this one too. I'm sure it's a unique development. Yeah. In England, but I don't really know anything about it. Right. Right. Long sidebars. All right. I can't even imagine what this looks like. Uh, all right. More claps. Next is English setter. This is our third dog in this episode. Noun from 1845, any of a breed of dogs often trained as bird dogs and characterized by a moderately long, flat, silky coat of white or white with color and by feathering on the tail and legs. Yeah, the only thing I know about English setters, I think, is they're supposedly when they would smell the prey or whatever they were you're hunting, mm-hmm. they would sit down. And that's why they were called setters. Oh, interesting. I wonder why they they know. must have trained them to do that, but I wonder why. I guess. Huh. But instead of like the the tail sticking out yeah. or pointing or whatever, you know, they would uh they sit down. That's my understanding anyway. Hmm. That's where it comes from. And then of course we have pointers that would do that. Um yep. interesting. Yeah, and I I can definitely see these these dogs. Yeah, they have that very sort of flowy uh what do they call it? silky feathering of the tail. Uh yeah. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I think that that requires another post on social media for what is an English setter look like. There you go. Mm-hmm. Maybe I need to post one of it setting down. <laughs> Be appropriate. Yes. Uh, okay, we have one last word. One last good clap, please. Oh. Perfect. Uh, this is our fourth dog. It's the English Shepherd. Um, and I, I'm going to spell shepherd because I think people like to spell it a couple of different ways. This one is S H E. P-H-E-R-D. Sometimes you see it with an A-R-D at the end. But I think that's just a different context, probably. Yeah, I think it, the the thing to remember there when you're spelling is it, it's, it comes from sheep herding. Mm-hmm. So the, the person who herds the sheep is the sheep herd or shepherd. Yeah. So yeah, it does have that H in there, H-E-R-D. Uh, this one is a noun from 1950. Any of a breed of vigorous, medium-sized working dogs with a long and glossy black coat, usually with tan to brown markings that was developed in England for herding sheep and cattle. It's the only one that gave us a very specific reason why it's called an English shepherd. Why did they not do that for the others? I don't know. I don't know either. That's it. Um, English shepherd, of course, I'll post another picture of that. It's going to, maybe I'll try and do them all within a day. Uh, so you can see all these lovely English dogs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were a bunch on the list. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that was it. Now I'm going to just quickly reread the words, and then you get to pick a word of the episode. So we had today English, 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 English breakfast, English cocker spaniel, 
English Daisy, English Foxhound, English Holly, English Horn, English Ivy, Englishman, English Muffin, English Pea, Englishry, my mouth doesn't want to say that word, English Saddle, uh, English Setter, and English Shepherd. What do you like? I mean, I'd be I'd be remiss if I didn't pick English. I had a feeling that's got to be the word, yeah, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I do a, I do a whole podcast for eleven years on English, <laughs> so I'd be crazy not to pick that word. I was hoping you were going to pick English muffin, but yeah, I think English works. Um, yeah. So um, I highly, highly, highly recommend that if you're in- interested in English at all, definitely go check out Kevin's podcast, The History of English Podcast. Um, where can they find you? Um, you know, email, social media, all those things. Yeah, I mean, the, the podcast, uh, the website is historyofenglishpodcast.com. That's the easy place. And uh, I do have email. It's kevin at historyofenglishpodcast.com. Um, I don't do a lot on social media. Mm-hmm. I do still have a, a Twitter X, whatever account. Yeah. It's at EnglishHistPod. H I S T P O D, mm-hmm. but I, I don't do a lot. I've never really been much of a social media person. I do. Uh, I'll post when there's a new episodes and things like that. But, uh, but yeah, m- mostly just the website. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, and uh, oh, what was I going to say? Um, oh, and you, did, am I correct? You had you said you have a Patreon. I do. Yeah, it's uh, Patreon dash history of english i think is what or patreon slash history of english but yeah um it's i do a bonus episode in between every regular episode so i typically do one regular episode every month and i do a bonus episode in between and whereas the regular episodes are all chronological so we're just telling the story kind of year by year decade by decade the Patreon episodes are completely different. They're just random top topics, whatever, hmm. you know, is of interest to me. So I've talked about, you know, where the, the old, you know, accent that we associate with movies, where it came from, how it developed. I've talked about, um, Beatles and, and their unique accent and how it's reflected in their music. We've talked about all kinds of, uh, interesting things like acronyms and back formations and, all kinds of fun stuff. Right now I'm talking about um, automatopoeia. Mm. So yeah, just random topics kind of get thrown in there and explore the history of, of words and language in a, a little bit different way. I love it. So yeah, if, if the podcast isn't enough interesting uh, English information for you, then definitely uh, join Kevin's Patreon where you can get even more information. Um, I love the fact that you talk about the old movie uh, dialects. That's great. Yeah, I included that as actually in the in the regular feed, so you don't even okay. have to go to Patreon. If you go to wherever you listen to podcasts, you can actually find that. Uh, I did that just to kind of give listeners an idea of what I'm doing over there, because so many people these days who do podcasts say, I've got a Patreon, but what that is can vary. It can be... Yeah might not be much of anything. So I just want people to understand that what I, I spend as much time and effort on those episodes as I do on the regular episodes. So you get a lot, it's a lot of worth for the dollar that you're spending, whatever dollars you're spending. Yeah. And I'm quickly approaching, um, a hundred of those bonus episodes as well. So in addition to the 170 regular ones, there's almost a hundred bonus ones too. So there's a lot out there, but you believe it or not, there's a lot of history to talk about. (laughs) It's a lot of stuff to talk about with English. Who knew? Yeah. 
Um, well, thank you so much for doing this. Um, any last sure. words uh, just about anything that you want to say before we uh, close no, up? No, just thanks for having me. And I appreciate what you're doing. I hope more people discover it. And uh, who, who knew that reading the dictionary could be so fascinating? That's what I've always been saying. I thank you for, for coming on. For, I'm glad that we were able to find the time. This worked out perfectly. Um, and uh, obviously, go check out his podcast and go check out my podcast. If you're coming here from the History of English podcast, uh, check out my back catalog. And um, I can't wait to see, see where this goes. So All right. thank you very much to everybody. And until next time, this is Spencer Dispensing Information. Goodbye. Thanks. Bye-bye.